One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Adam Folds on his latest novel, Dream Sequence. Adam Fold's most recent books are In the Wolf's Mouth, The Cricketing Maze, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won the Encore Award and the European Union Prize for Literature, and The Broken Word, which won the Costa Poetry Award and the Somerset Maugham Award. He has recently been awarded the E.M. Forster Award by the American Academy of Arts and Letters and named as one of Granter's best young British novelists. And Adam's latest book, Dream Sequence, we're going to talk about today. Adam, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So how would you describe Dream Sequence? Dream Sequence is a slightly fevered uh, short novel that uh, is wrapped up in the experiences of two characters. Uh, Henry, who is an actor um, who has become very successful in one television programme, which has now ended after a few seasons. Uh, this one um, lucky bit of casting having carried him uh, further than uh, he'd expected. He's now being ejected at the end of that and in a state of anxious ambition. He's looking for the next thing. Um, he's looking to become a star, to become a uh, well-known and uh, notably versatile actor. So we follow him. He is uh, preparing for an audition when we first meet him with a kind of European art house director who he thinks will give him a lot of um, cachet and help boost him in the way that he, he wants. Um, he is starving himself uh, for a few days for that audition because that's a, a a role should he get it that would require some body transformation of the kind we're familiar with certain actors uh, have undergone so that's Henry uh, wrapped around Henry's story is um, that of a character called Kristen who is an American um, in Philadelphia she has met Henry on one occasion and when she did so, in a state of some kind of emotional disarray at that point, had an experience akin to a religious experience um, in which it was revealed to her that the universe is essentially uh, loving and safe and that she and Henry are destined to be together. Um, and she is determined and sets about um, in the course of the novel to bring this about. Yeah, we can say she's met Henry, but Henry didn't really meet her in the same no way. no henry met her in the way that he might meet any uh fan in an airport and not think too much about it um but for 
Kristen, it was it was life changing and utterly kind of clarifying of her destiny. Um, I want to talk about Kristen first. And when we first meet her, she's, I mean, she's just recently divorced, but I mean, and she has a sort of, I guess, rather a fraught relationship with her own family. Um, and indeed, probably her, you know, most intimate relationship is with with her young stepson. Yeah. Um, but she's, you know, she's a woman of some privilege. She's not, you know, she's... Let's talk about the position she's in when we first meet her in the book. So uh, she comes from a working-class background, um, and she became the PA to a successful businessman, and that turned, as those uh, relationships can, into um, a romantic relationship. Uh, he divorced his first wife, married her... Um, she was uh, lifted up into a world of, as you say, privilege and uh, money that she certainly was not used to uh, before. And then just as her kind of potentially child-rearing, child-bearing years are uh, are passing, he uh, divorces her and moves on to his third wife. He's described as the kind of guy who, you know, who would want to have uh, a third wife on his CV. Um, so she is then spat out she has a settlement um she's living in a small house in philadelphia on her own and for the timing that she doesn't have any strong pressure to get a job which means there's all the more room for her interest in henry to kind of expand and exfoliate yeah exactly and all of these all of these reasons the situation that she's in the fact that she has this leisure time make it sort of perfect for this fantasy this dream relationship mm. to percolate doesn't it yes that's exactly right yeah um, so, what does Kristen think happened when she meets Henry in the airport? Um, I think she thinks that she saw reality and that her twin soul was present in uh, Henry and and that she she had a, a deep experience of knowing. As I say, very akin to a religious experience and uh, therefore, in a similar way, opaque to people around her. You know, she is driven by faith in an invisible reality. Um, now, obviously, we're not going to talk about too much about what happens in the book, but it, it does give away in the blurb on the on the leaf that she um, she tra- travels to basically follows Henry to London and then, you know, things happen. Um, I want to talk about this idea of the stalker. Um, well, have you had any experience of that yourself? Yeah, I have some experience, uh, and I've I've seen it unfold somewhat. Uh, but I would say that actually, what I'm interested in in Kristen's psychology and why she is not written in a kind of uh, psychopathic true crime mm-hmm. style is that um, she is on a continuum with. Um, the way all of us think in a magical way um, from time to time. Anyone falling in love is overcommitting to <laughs> an ideal. Um, uh, anytime you think uh, this is destined to happen, I was fated to meet this person, we are meant to be together, you are in that realm um, of thinking about the universe having some invisible intent um, that is guiding the shape of your life. Uh, and she's, I think, broadly speaking, you could say that stalkers can be divided into people like Kristen who are mystical and actually kind of sweet and committed to uh, an idea of of love and connection. And uh, the more typical stalker who is 
predatory, typically a, a, a kind of jilted boyfriend who then pursues the ex. So, yeah, Kristen, as I say, is is someone who is committed to an ideal of love that um, uh, to some extent we all share. Hers is very boundary crossing and exists in, is an exacerbated uh, example of, you know, part of all our psyche, which is kind of iridescent and uh, and weird. And also, I mean, we'll talk about more about this when we move on to talk about Henry in more detail, but the idea of celebrity culture itself, which obviously is all nowadays in this age of social media is is even more saturating than it, than it was before. And, and in his own way, Henry is as caught up in this idea of, you know, pursuing the dream of celebrity culture as Christian is. He is. They're both beset by desire. They're both dangerously committed to a future that they have to bring about. So Henry is still persuaded that there is a level of success, a breakthrough um, that can come in his life that will lift him clear of his anxieties and will make everything safe. And again, that's a, that's a thing that we experience in some form every time we indulge in that thought that if, if this one thing would just happen, then everything would be okay. Um, if we could get this job, if such and such occurred, uh, then our life would be sorted. So yeah, and his story is the success and failure of that. And there is some intimation, there's some exploration of the space that is uh, in uh, a, a phrase of Philip Larkin's fulfillment's desolate attic, you know, the achieving something and finding that it doesn't sustain and gratify you in the way that you want, and then committing to the next achievement in a, in a kind of endless uh, reigniting hope. So let's talk more about Henry Banks then. So as you said, he's just come off the back of this sort of middle brow Sunday night Think Downton Abbey, basically the Grange. Which oh, I may so, have done. Yeah. Yes, um, the the show that you know has obviously been you know massively popular and has put him in everybody's living rooms and and that's finished now. Tell us where Henry comes from. Henry comes from a general sense of a kind of uh, neurosis that's in the culture. This is a book in which I wanted to kind of grapple with things that seem very. Uh, striking and uh, lurid at times in our uh, contemporary culture around um, the idea of fame, the idea of success, the idea of curating, as you know, one would now say, curating oneself. Uh, all things that, again, we many people do in their Instagram feeds and their Facebook photos and the like. It's about all all those things that are going on. Um, what obviously Henry, being undeniably a successful actor, is in a very privileged position in society but an actor's life is also remains uncertain and remains subject to a you know possible rapid fade away yeah it's a life of constant rejection it's a life of constant rejection and it is therefore a life in which some of the more anxieties about precarity that are more generally shared in society are experienced also and as you mentioned with the uh, the sort of Philip Larkin idea, he's you know, he has this amazing career, a career that anybody would would envy. But he's he's constantly unsatisfied, um, empty basically, and and you know, literally illustrated by the fact that for this art house role that he's going for, he's he's basically you know starving himself in mm. in that sort of like method acty way. Um, what has he got to be dissatisfied about? Oh well, that's that's not uh, 
um, amenable to kind of rational correction. <laughs> I mean, it's it's in his personality. It's in lots of our personalities. Um, you meet his parents a few times mm-hmm. in the novel and you get a sense of maybe why it is that he has grown into an actor, why um, he has, that is to say, um, sought love and approval from strangers. It's a very typical uh, feature of actors' biographies is uh, a certain set of uh, experiences and the d- denial of approval in in childhood. I was very immersed in actors' biographies and interviews um, with them uh, as I was uh, building Henry. As it, as to some extent we all are. I mean, they're extremely uh, overestimated and overexposed <laughs> people in our culture. There are one might think often much more interesting people to devote, you know, feature interviews in the Sunday supplements to than the latest young man who's getting to play Hamlet in the West End or uh, or whoever. When you talk about him feeling constantly unsatisfied and constantly anxious, I think for a number of very successful actors, there is no point at which that ceases. I saw an interesting interview with Dame Judi Dench a few years ago when she was asked uh, what she thought about her competitors, if she thought about other actresses um, who might be up for the role that she's up for or, you know, people that she'd come up with the Maggie Smiths or whoever over the over the years um, who might have been up for the same jobs as as she was, um, and she said very kind of coolly that she felt them all the time, and she gestured to her sort of left shoulder that they were present uh, in her peripheral vision all the time, which clearly indicates a you know a quite uncomfortable uh, source for an endless determination to to succeed. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Adam Folds and we're talking about his latest novel, Dream Sequence. And Adam's just sticking with that, with Henry's world of, you know, the, the acting world. You've made a decision to basically set this book. It's basically, um, it's a novel, it's a, it's a fictional story, but set in the real world. So real named actors, you know, Michael yeah, Fassbender, up, yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch are mentioned in the book as people that are in Henry's periphery, which also gives this... I mean, I guess I wanted to talk about the, where the title comes from as well, but this is... Kristen is constructing this fantasy world. Um, Henry is living in this world of celebrity, but also there's this sort of like crossover between fact and fiction in the story as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it would seem absurd to invent a lot of actors' names just when, you know, people will immediately know who I'm talking about when I name them. And I've, I find there's a, little, there's a little kind of buzz that you get when uh, a nice line is produced about an actor that you that you know, that you uh, uh, can sort of recognise um, the work of description uh, there and also that it just immediately feels, therefore, connected to the real world, to your lived experience. What was the second part of that question? Was that... Well, I mean, that was that was basically what I wanted to get yeah. to the, the the sort of the mixing, you know, why you made that decision yeah. to mix the fact, the fact and fiction. Oh, and also, yeah, let's talk about the title. As a title, it just came to mind as something that just sort of sits in the middle of these various concerns of the novel. Dream sequence obviously has a filmic connotation. I'm a big fan of dream sequences in cinema generally, like the one in Rosemary's Baby, for example, or uh, Wild Strawberries. This is one of the best bits of cinema, I think. Dream obviously has a a connotation of the desired thing, you know, your dream home, your dream kitchen. It would be my dream, etc. And at the same time, a connotation of the unreal and the delusional. So those two things are obviously working together in the book and sequence you know there's for both of them as I say they're deeply committed to ideas about the future and to a particular uh, at different times different course of events unfolding so the idea of the the dream sequence is the ideal unfolding of uh, of their lives. I want to talk about Henry's Henry describes film he wants to get into film mm. you know he's we see him doing Hamlet in the West End, and we know that he's been on TV, but his his dream is to get into film. And he has this great idea, which is that film is basically like a historical artefact. Mm. You know, you can look back at a film now and the, everyone that's in it is probably dead, And mm. but, you know, that thing will last forever. Tell me about that idea. Well, again, I, I guess it's a version of the desire for escape and for stability is the sense that he could produce a performance that would be perfected in its cinematography and and in its final form and would last inexhaustibly forever in the way that you know great film performances i mean obviously they're not generally not more than 100 years old but they last and are revisitable and have an authority and a charisma in the culture that is very uh, specific obviously theater has extraordinary um qualities and values that um that people are are deeply committed to, but there is something about the version of fame and the version of kind of charismatic selfhood that cinema offers in you know in its de Niro's in the way that people do impressions of you know great scenes of movies and quote them and live with them in their uh, in their minds and rewatch them. This is all stuff that Henry wants because he thinks it will 
he will feel it and it will yeah it will release and establish him and so i wanted to talk about the um the the genius film director mm. um miguel garcia that henry mm. is you know desperate to work for he thinks this mm. is going to elevate him this is you know one of those european auteur filmmakers mm. and although of course you know we are really only seeing our impression of of miguel garcia through henry's eyes when he actually meets him and works with him he's he's disappointed i'd say yes perhaps not at first they have fairly interesting conversation that we are witness to early on but well this partly came out of conversations with actors that i know who have said that that people generally kind of really overestimate what directors give to actors and the um the relationship between directors and actors um often it's extremely minimal and actors are just given their marks and told to go and uh there isn't the kind of guru like working together to generate um a great performance that um that lots of people th- uh, imagine it's a lot in the photography and in the editing um, and in what the actor themselves brings to the role. So I think that is partly what he's learning, that uh, even uh, someone like Miguel Garcia is not going to be the kind of ideal artistic parent that he imagines for himself. There's also a um, there's a sequence in the book where Henry goes off to a film festival in um, Doha in Qatar and you know, there's this world, this again, as almost a dream world mm. rising out of the desert that shouldn't really exist and, you know, is the sort of plaything of billionaires and is built by indentured workers. I wanted to know why you wanted to explore that. Have you been to one of these literary festivals out in Dubai or whatever? I have been to Doha a couple of times in a literary capacity um, and I was very struck by it and made a bunch of notes and this was the venue where that material could could be activated but I was very you know as a writer as uh, someone therefore in some corner of the entertainment business the sense that one has of existing in a space within larger economic system that is uh, in lots of ways deeply vicious but allows you this little kind of corner of harmless play is something that I wanted to explore a bit in Henry's experience the sense of being this little uh you know pixie on a kind of wasteland <laughs> um and London as well a lot of, obviously most of the books is set in London um Henry lives in a in an apartment in the Docklands mm. um I just wanted to talk about writing London what is it about London well I've lived here uh, pretty much all my life and therefore it's deeply kind of impressed on my senses but I think I was interested in this book, particularly in the way that it has changed in the last 20 years, I guess, in many ways for the better as, a, you know, for the for the user experience. Trafalgar Square is a good example of a place where uh, traffic was has been rationalised. When I was growing up, it, you know, it was not closed at the top. There was traffic all around. It was quite an awkward space to traverse. It was very... Uh, quite grimy. There are lots of developments around London which have produced these much smoother, sleeker spaces uh, to be in. Uh, and there's this kind of sheeny, glassy surface to lots of parts of London now that is an expression of where consumer capitalism mm. has got to. And uh, and it's a strange bunch of sensations that I wanted to kind of record and 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 pay attention to. Often 
both seductive and slightly dejecting. You know, you feel a lack of kind of purchase in the texture in the surface of the city. But at the same time, as I say, it's easy. It delivers, you know, tasty snacks whenever you want them, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. And sort of, you know, yeah, easier to easier to live in, but sort of somehow depersonalised at the same time. And I guess that's sort of reflecting Henry's sort of the feeling that he has again, this sort of dissatisfaction constantly. Yes, I th- yeah, I think that's right. I think he is intended to be someone who's feeling both the seductions, the begarments of the contemporary world and the way it's not connecting to his centre and it's not uh, giving him a, a way to live in itself. And he he is simply expecting too much of it and looking for the wrong things in places that offer you know, that seem to that present themselves as giving you all the life satisfactions that you require, but don't. To what extent, I mean, obviously, as a, you know, as a, a book, a shortlisted author, not obviously to the extent of, you know, someone who's a TV star or a film star, but to what extent are you now expected to engage with this sort of always on world? You know, I know you're on Twitter, you're expected by the publisher to have an Instagram feed and things like that. Do they? I don't have an Instagram feed. Um, I'm not really expected to do those things. Um, I'm asked if I, if I have them, and but I'm not. Uh, committed to it in any big way. There are some writers who've made a real art of their Twitter feeds and uh, deploy them very well. There's a, a writer, American writer, um, Rabbi Alan Medin, who has a fantastic Twitter feed, is kind of constantly curating and putting together uh, paintings and uh, poems that he likes. Um, uh, and obviously, you know, part of uh, his personality and his profile as a as a writer is manifest in that way but yeah it's a very unintensive kind of fame if it's uh i mean fame is it doesn't even feel like the right word for it you know a few people um whom i haven't met know who i am <laughs> but uh, really aren't uh, i don't think too many of them uh, and it's not long before i will meet them and it doesn't in any way kind of impinge or i don't even uh, you know i'm completely unaware the thought that there are readers out there who uh, are interacting with my work and that I don't know about is uh, is kind of, is really sort of out of my field of vision. I feel I live in a bunker, really. <laughs> so just w- one other thing then, and then I'll, I'll get you to read a bit of the book for us, if you would. Um, you mentioned uh, in the first part, in terms of researching, you know, Henry, obviously talking to actors, but also, you know, the celebrity biography and, you know, so many great ones of those there are. Um I just want to know what other what other sort of books were an influence on this one. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think I had to hand, in the same way that I have done with other books, a bunch of books that are like feeding into it and that I'm resorting to for examples and to excite me. Um, I think the writing that I like generally was, you know, has kept me buoyant in the writing of it, um, and there's some overlap. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of Saul Bellow and Don DeLillo, who both write urban, Don DeLillo particularly, uh, about kind of the glassier kind of the modern urban experience. And also the age of celebrity. And the age of celebrity, yeah. He's written very well about fame in both in Mautu and uh, Great Jones Street. So they were there. I have pieces of music that um, I will listen to that become bound up with particular experiences or particular characters, and both Henry and Kristen had bits of music that I would occasionally listen to that 
that reminded me of their worlds and enabled me to kind of re-enter them. So to just get back into the mode of writing those yeah. characters. Yes, exactly. Um, can I get you to read us a little bit? Sure. I'm now going to read the first time that we meet Henry, who, as I say, has is in a state of anxious preparation for an audition with Miguel Garcia. The hunger was beginning to hurt. Three days of grinding emptiness, of heat and sudden flutterings in the left side of his body. The relief of small meals in the evenings, monkish bowls of rice and green vegetables that he perceived so sharply, his senses attuned to the rising steam, the warmth and aroma. And afterwards, the velvety sensation of being fed that allowed him to fall asleep. In the morning he was hungry again. It was working. It was worth doing. He was becoming what he needed to be to convince Garcia, who finally was in London, to see him. But it would be a mistake to fast today. He needed energy. He went to his kitchen and ate a banana and two large handfuls of nuts. Enough food to relax and feel well, but not enough to dull his sharpness. He ate and hummed to himself. He dressed. He ran his hands down the smoothness of his abdomen. His body was tight. His trousers hung from his hip bones. He chose a khaki linen shirt with button-down pockets that he thought had the right sort of feel, serious, adaptable, with connotations of the military and the desert. Henry checked how he looked in the mirror. Henry's face was something everybody had to deal with to assimilate and get over, even Henry. When Henry caught sight of his face, he often felt as though he were arriving late at something already happening. His face looked so finished and authoritative. He had the approved lines, the symmetry. He looked how a man should look. His handsomeness could be a shock as much for him as for others, who sometimes also had to process their recognition of him, their sensation of an untethered and inexplicable intimacy. Occasionally Henry thought that it would be nice, warm and relaxed and human, to be a little ugly, to have a face that showed personality in pouches under the eyes or a large soft mouth, the face of a character actor expressing suffering and humour. His own good looks were bland, Henry thought, mainstream, televisual. Hunger seemed to be improving it, its calm masculinity now fretted with sharpness and shadows. Henry had observed long ago that cinematic faces were not normally attractive, not attractive in a normal way. They did not belong on Sunday evening television or in clothing catalogues or any realm of the conventional ideals. The truly cinematic actors, that is. Look at Joaquin Phoenix with his dark, crushed stare and scarred mouth, or Meryl Streep's long, thin nose and subtle, not-quite-sensual mouth, her large and frightening eyes, her affronting vulnerability. All of them, when you thought about it, Christopher Walken, Jack Nicholson, Bogart and Hoffman and Day-Lewis. Of course, the actresses tended to be more straightforwardly beautiful, but then overwhelmingly so. Think of the wide landscape of Julia Roberts's smile, an American landscape, honest, expansive, full of hope. No, up until now, Henry's face had been of the reassuring kind that made for success on TV. It had lacked the strangeness and astringency that made for cinema. But now, perhaps, it was coming, with age, with hunger. He observed himself in the mirror. He said, Ba, 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 pa, 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 red lorry, yellow lorry, red lorry, yellow lorry. How are you today? I'm fine, sir. How are you today? He checked his phone to see if his taxi had arrived. It hadn't. He stepped out onto his balcony to smoke a cigarette, cupping the lighter flame from the blustery river air. 
A whirring sound, straight and fast, a cormorant flew low over the water. He should be looking at his pages again. He threw the cigarette away and went in. So I've been talking to Adam Folds. We've been talking about his latest book, Dream Sequence, which is out now in the UK from Jonathan Cape. Adam, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.